Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. None of us would be here today without the benefit of other individuals helping us. And it's always interesting to me because you'll see someone who's been highly successful and it's I, 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 I. Unfortunately, many of us get caught up in our ego where this I thing we think is building us up. But really what it does is it just shows you a lack of self-awareness and insight and in some ways, your own insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. On today's show, I have a guest who's been one of my greatest inspirations. He's been changing the world for years through his research. He is Dr. James Doty, the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University and a clinical professor for neurosurgery at Stanford School of Medicine. Dr. Doty hasn't always been a professor for neurosurgery though. He was a high-flying CEO of a multi-million dollar company and donated nearly $30 million to the School of Medicine. Dr. Doty is the author of one of my most favorite books and best-selling books, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest, 
to discover the mysteries of the brain and secrets of the heart. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. He's a speaker and you may very well have watched his viral TED Talks such as How Compassion Can Change the World or Hacking Your Brain for Happiness. Dr. Doty also works alongside the Dalai Lama as chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. His work has impacted millions globally. He was one of the first people to inspire me to develop Happy Not Perfect. It is a true pleasure and honour to have Dr. Doty on the Not Perfect podcast today. Dr. Doty, what's a favourite quote you return to often? There are actually two. One is by um, Wordsworth, and it's um, basically, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but it basically goes, if we were able to look into the heart of others, we would see their pain and it would soften us towards our criticism. You know, because so many of us, first of all, we're dealing with our own pain. And then when we look out and people are either not nice or we perceive them as not nice, we then intuit sometimes about us. And oftentimes, you know, people are struggling themselves and their actions, just like your actions, are oftentimes a manifestation of that struggle and the pain that you have. So it's a reminder of um, being kind and uh, generous and forgiving. The other one, in some ways, uh, relates to uh, actually something I've been thinking about uh, for some time, which is income inequality. Because the basis of so much human suffering, especially in the United States, I'm sure in the UK on some level, is this disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And in the United States over the last uh, several decades, which is one of the most prosperous periods of the country in terms of wealth creation, that wealth has not gone down to the average person it's unfortunately gone into the pockets of the um, very wealthy. And we've seen the results of that. Uh, There is a lack of a social safety net. You know, we don't have universal health care. We don't have child care. We don't have free education. Uh, We have a large percentage of the middle class uh, with no future and no opportunities. And in fact, the middle class is being destroyed you know, you look at our minimum wage uh, is, I think, $7.25 an hour. You notice it's not called a living wage because no human being could live on that. And uh, if you look at what the minimum wage was, uh, it hasn't really changed significantly. In fact, if you just simply kept up with inflation, the minimum wage would be about $22 an hour, which is truly a living wage. And, you know, years and years ago, a person without a skill set or a minimal skill set could get a minimal paying job and still would be able to have a roof over the head, be married, care for children. Uh, You know, they're not going to live a particularly expensive lifestyle, but you can live. And now that's effectively impossible. And that's one of the reasons we also have, um, you know, the highest suicide rate is men around 40 because they don't know how to care for their families. They don't know what to do. They don't see options for themselves. And it's very demoralizing if you have a wife and children or you're trying to plan a future and you're in, you know, your forties and you don't have a future. And then we have the elite who have designated themselves as the ones who will solve the problem. 
and this is the nature of this quote, which is by Leonard Tolstoy, and I'll paraphrase again since my memory's not that good, but it says, you know, there's a man on your back choking you who apologizes, but never does he offer to stop choking you and get off of your back. Actually, this is the nature oftentimes of the wealthy. As long as you don't threaten their wealth, uh, the incredibly unfair manner in which they have accumulated their wealth, everything is good. So thinking about this has actually um, led me to work with a few people to create something called um, the Compassionate Countries Index. You know, how, how do you create a set of rules, if you will, and how do you determine those countries that aren't based on simply GDP, but are looking at human thriving? And, uh, you know, that has to do with, you know, uh, how many people are on welfare, how many people are unemployed, is there free education, is there free health care, and a whole variety of measures uh, that in some ways are aligned with the UN sustainability goals, but uh, they're very country specific. And it's interesting because if you look at countries that are most likely to live by this ethos, uh, almost all of them now are run by women. And the reason is, is because they have a much different perspective. They're more empathic, they're more uh, compassionate. They see the failings of so many of these things where, and I'm not trying to simply make it male or female because there are some uh, men, and I hopefully would include myself, that have great sensitivity uh, to the suffering of others. But oftentimes people get trapped into this narrative of competing for a position and not, uh, if you will, doing the right thing. So those are the two quotes. <laughs> Gosh, that's so informative. And this actually kind of brings me to kind of skip a couple of questions, really, just to bring up this idea of survival of the kindest, which is a term that I was introduced to by you. I had been taught Darwinism theory all wrong. You know, I'd been taught it was survival of the fittest. And suddenly I read your work and it said, no, 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 no. Let's hold on a second. The way that human society is going to evolve is through survival of the kindest. I would love for you to explain a little bit more about that. What happened is that there was an economist who was trying to prove a point and who in some ways distorted uh, Darwin's work. Uh, his name was Hobbes, if I recall. He tried to distort uh, uh, Darwin's work. But in fact, if you do uh, look in his work, there is a quote that it is survival of the kindness, or he uses the term um, to mean those who are most cooperative. It's not the most ruthless that survive. It's those who band together to improve the lot of everyone. None of us would be here today without the benefit of other individuals helping us. And it's always interesting to me because you'll see um, someone who's been highly successful and it's I, 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 I. And there is no I because uh, nothing any of us do uh, is without the assistance, aid, help of someone else. Unfortunately, uh, many of us get caught up in our ego where this I thing we think is building us up but really what it does is it just shows you uh, a lack of self-awareness and insight. And in some ways, um, your own insecurities, because what's wrong with people helping you? What's wrong with acknowledging that? What's wrong with actually 
giving, uh, you know, to uh, uh, people who've helped you and been a benefit. You know, I used to run a company, and when I left the company, there were uh, a number of individuals who I thought hadn't been rewarded properly. And literally, as I left, I handed envelopes to people, giving them some of my stock. Wow. But you don't see uh, that, uh, unfortunately, uh, very often. And the thing is, the world would be a much better place uh, if we did see that. This probably brings me on to talk about your work in compassion, because really the question I want to ask you is, well, how do we make the world more like that? And then I thought, well, actually, that question is so large and your entire life has been dedicated to answering that question. So maybe an easier place to start is what even is compassion? Well, if you're a scientist, of course, you have to have definitions. And uh, uh, because oftentimes people use these terms very loosely, you know, for some people, when you say uh, someone's compassionate, they think of this wimpy person who lets people step on them. And really, that's not compassion whatsoever. You know, a compassionate person recognizes uh, the suffering of another and has a motivational desire to alleviate that suffering. And the reason I use that term motivational desire, sometimes they're not necessarily able to help, but they want to help. And that's really uh, the most important point. You know, you have terms like empathy, and some people will utilize that in a similar fashion to compassion. But for myself and many others, empathy is taking on the emotional state of another. And that can be, you can have empathic joy. You can be happy for it. You, you can see somebody being happy, and you can take on that and feel happy yourself. And it, it's not an active action in the sense that I feel this, therefore I'm going to do something. You're simply experiencing it. And Mathieu Ricard, who you may recall is a um, fairly prominent Buddhist monk in France, you know, he wrote a book on altruism. And, uh, you know, his statement was, and this is while he was actually in an fMRI machine uh, where they were monitoring his uh, brain metabolism. And they would ask him to be empathic to someone suffering. And he said it, it was horribly painful because he couldn't do anything about it. He could only sit with their pain. Versus compassion, you're alleviating their suffering and as, at least as best you can take it away. So I think those are the two differences. And what is happening in the brain when we are being compassionate? Well, there are a number of uh, uh, areas in the brain, and it's not just one. It's not like there's a happiness center or a compassion center. Uh, what we do know is that um, two areas, the uh, caudate and, and the insular area, uh, relate to each other. And uh, what happens is that uh, when you care for another, these areas in your brain, your reward centers are actually activated, and uh, you feel good. The reason that is, is because if you look at the evolution of our species, our species don't swim away or run off into the forest when they're born. They actually have to be cared for. And the reason is that to have these parts of our cortex associated with theory of mind or abstract thinking or complex language, those have to grow and they require 
an individual, the offspring, to mirror the actions of their parent. And this takes, for most children, uh, 10, 15 years or so to really get across these uh, narratives of how to act in the world, how to behave, and how to respond to different events in your environment. Well, this is an immense cost in terms of time, resources. So why would you do that as a caregiver? Well, one is, is because that when you care, you feel good. Mm. When you care for a loved one, you bond with the loved one, you cannot help but want to, to make them safe, to feed them, to ensure their survival. And that's how we have survived uh, as a species. So they have to mirror our behavior. We have this mirror neuron system. So this is how, why it translates you know, into modern society. When you care for someone, whether it's an offspring or another individual, you feel good about it. And the thing is, it also shifts you from the sympathetic nervous system, which uh, is typically associated with our flight, fight, or fear, or freeze response, to your parasympathetic nervous system, which is associated with what we call our rest and digest system. But more importantly, it's also associated with being much more open uh, to information, uh, connecting with another person, not having fear of the other. Um, and these parts of your brain, which are called your executive control area in your frontal medial region, they actually work their best. You are much more able to make thoughtful, discerning decisions when you're in this relaxed, open mode of functioning. And of course, if you're looking in regard to your family or offspring, that's how you also connect the best. When you're open, you're receptive, you're available, you're present. And so uh, by being kind and compassionate, it forces you in that direction. And the good thing is there are certain techniques, uh, mindfulness meditation, uh, compassion meditation, some of these others that help you make this shift to be in the correct uh, mindset uh, to be more kind, available, thoughtful. I listened to a talk where, and it was just such a great metaphor, uh, when you were talking about our evolutionary baggage that we bring around with us. And that almost is the greatest threat to us being in this compassionate mode where we're able to be lit up, where we're able to feel good for caring for people because our kind of survival instincts get in the way of that. Would you mind talking a bit more about that and why you think we are maybe less compassionate than we should be in today's current world? Well, first of all, you have to realize that we were never meant to survive in this world. The nature of our evolution or the evolution of any species takes literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years while the nature of technology or what we call mar modernity happens in simply years or decades. So literally our DNA is completely unchanged than when we were on the savanna in Africa 200,000 years ago. I mean, completely unchanged. Yet we are made to respond to demands that obviously didn't exist at that time. And as a result, Unlike on the savannah in Africa, if you see the grass move, you, you, know, you know it's probably a lion or some potential threat. 
your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, your pupils dilate, uh, your sphincters close, you shift uh, your blood supply to your skeletal muscles, and hopefully you run away and run up a tree and survive. But, you know, in the modern world, this system can be chronically engaged as a result of just modern society, the nature of, you know, telephones going off or your cell phone going off all the time, work schedules, demands on your time, family issues, and they all sort of pile up on you. And for many people, they create a constant source of low level to medium level to even high stress. And, you know, the mechanisms that your body uh, has evolved to deal with that get kicked in. Yet you don't need that. And as a result, uh, you know, many people have increased blood pressure, cardiac issues. You know, one of the greatest causes of sudden cardiac death is actually due to uh, decrease in heart rate variability, which is associated with engagement of your stress response. Plus, you know, when you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're stressed, this affects your immune system. It results in the release of uh, cortisol and other uh, hormones that are not beneficial to you on a long-term basis. It affects uh, the release of what we call inflammatory proteins. Uh, so there's this whole series of events that occur when you're chronically uh, stressed. And they're obviously associated with an effect on your lifespan. And also, of course, uh, on your quote-unquote degree of happiness or a feeling of uh, security. So many people have the stress sitting there, but they also carry the baggage that they've been carrying usually since childhood of some degree of trauma. And it's trauma that's not been dealt with. And uh, as a result, when you have chronic trauma, again, this contributes to this uh, engagement of your uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system. And it also creates chronic unhappiness uh, and uh, this sense of, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I don't deserve to be happy, uh, I'm an imposter, there are people who are smarter than me. And this whole series of a negative dialogue that only uh, contributes to uh, your unhappiness and engagement of your sympathetic nervous system. This brings me into talking about your book because it is the most beautiful journey really from meeting you as a child and addressing what you just said, which is going through this experience that almost healed your trauma so you could go and live a completely different life to what you may have done had you not had this experience that you write about in the book. And in a recent TED Talk, uh, you said a line which I just thought was really beautiful. You said, when you feel loved, everything changes. It takes you from darkness to light. I would love to hear about that experience in the magic shop and what your life was like before and how it's changed your life forever. So at the age of 12, uh, I was in a challenging situation. Uh, my father was an alcoholic and uh, my mother had had a stroke and um, she was paralyzed, partially paralyzed. She had a seizure disorder. She was chronically depressed. She um, attempted suicide multiple times. Neither of my parents went to college. We were on public assistance. Um, and, you know, as a child growing up in those environments, you don't have mentors, you don't have access, you don't have money. And 
your life is very constrained. And oftentimes, and for me, I felt uh, despair and hopelessness. You know, what was my future going to be? And I don't want to imply that my parents didn't love me because I, they did love me, in fact. But their ability to care and to love was mitigated by their own struggles. And as a result, in some ways, I was abandoned. And uh, at the age of 12, I was becoming a juvenile delinquent. What would happen is when conflict would occur at home, uh, I would typically want to get as far away from it as possible. And I used to have this um, orange stingray bicycle. And I would get on it and I would pedal it as fast as I could and just keep pedaling. And I did this one time and I ended up in a part of my town, which I normally don't go to. And uh, there was a strip mall there, which is a collection of buildings with different shops. And one of them was a magic store, which I had interest in magic. And I walked into this magic store. And it turned out that the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there. We ended up talking for 20 or 30 minutes. And at the end of it, she said to me, and you have to remember, this was in the late 60s, where there was no terminology for mindfulness or meditation. It certainly was not in vogue in any sense. Neuroplasticity uh, was not even a term that was used. And But this woman, uh, she said to me, she said, you know, I'm here for another six weeks. You know, if you show up, I could teach you something that I think might really be helpful for you. And, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you that I had some incredible self-awareness and insight that made me you know, go to that shop every day, and it's not true. I, uh, frankly, had nothing else to do, and she was giving me cookies, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> so I showed up every day, and uh, she taught me the reality that when you grow up in an environment like mine, and now, of course, there's a lot of science behind this. This is called adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. It's a form of constant trauma. As a result, living in that type of an environment, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, your father may not show up. He may show up drunk. He may have spent all the money. Your mother may, you know, be in bed uh, having overdosed on medication. And so you're terrified always because you never know what's going to hap be happening to you. And as a result, of course, your sympathetic nervous system is chronically engaged. And and this type of trauma, then as you go to adulthood, it, it continues in the sense that you have post-traumatic stress disorder because no matter what happens, you're always looking around wondering, you know, when the next uh, thing is going to happen. She taught me that as a result, I was very tense all the time and had a very hard time focusing. So she taught me something we now call a body survey, or I think I use in the book, Relaxing the Body. And just to begin a breathing exercise while relaxing the body, just go into it uh, with great intention. You start at your feet and you work your way up and you're breathing slowly in and releasing it. And the nature of that, uh, the breathing exercise especially, uh, results in you actually relaxing, calming down uh, so that you can be present. Because, you know, you can't learn anything, you can't achieve unless you are able to attend and to be present. You know, most people spend the majority of their lives either thinking about what could have been, might have been, should have been, or about a future uh, that has not yet occurred, but how they're going to deal with it. And as a result, there are very few people who are truly present 
at that moment. Yet we know that human connection, true human connection, requires you to be absolutely present for that person. And that's where the deepest bonds occur with people. So she taught me that. And then the other thing that she taught me, which was really important, was um, the reality that the voices that I had, that dialogue going in my head, was not me or was not truth. And what I mean by that is that negative events in terms of our evolution as a species are important lessons to learn early to stop us from dying. Like, you know, if you didn't know that the grass moving, that there was a lion causing that, then that could put you uh, at great risk. The problem is the same mechanisms that do that are also the same ones that allow for negative comments to stick in our head. Not that they're true or not, but we let them sit there. And in fact, somebody said, you know, negative comments are a hundred times more likely to stick in your brain than positive comments. And, and it's because negative things potentially put you at risk, or at least in terms of evolutionary theory, but not in this context. So what happens to so many of us is we get this dialogue going that says, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Uh, you know, if I only had this, it would be better. I would be a better person if this was there. And I used to have that always going on in my, in my head all the time. And she made me understand that that was not real. It wasn't truth. It was a self-created negative dialogue. And that it was within my power to change that. So I went from these negative commentaries about everything to one of self-affirmation. The thing about that is that when you are able to deal with this negative self-dialogue, when you're able to recognize for it for what it is, you stop becoming also self-focused and hypercritical. Because, you know, many people are more critical of themselves than they are to anybody else. But the nature of that results in also being judgmental and critical of other people. And this is the third lesson she taught me, which was opening the heart. So once I was able to deal with my own pain and uh, the suffering that I was creating for myself, it then allowed me to look out in the world and uh, be much more gentle and more thoughtful. The other side event of all of this, though, is that this self-awareness or this understanding made several other things possible. What I realized is, as a species, we have the ability to intuit people's emotional states from their facial expressions, from their voice intonation, from their body habitus, even their smells. And I realized that when I carried myself with anger, hostility, fear, anxiousness, that people interpreted that. And as a result, it changed how they interacted with me in the sense that, you know, it's like crossing the street when you see some angry person. When I changed how I looked at the world, when I changed how I looked at others, that changed how the world looked at me. And that was really the manifestation of what she was trying to teach me. Because when you 
change how you are acting, when you're open, you're kind, you're thoughtful, you're caring, that then results in people acting, in most cases, uh, the same towards you. The other side effect was that, you know, I used to be angry at my parents because, you know, I felt that they had abandoned me, that they didn't care, uh, all these other, again, negative things. But what I realized is that they were struggling with their own demons and did not have the tool set that allowed them to overcome that suffering. It wasn't necessarily their fault. They just had no one to help them, and they were just surviving the, the best they could. One part of the story which I really loved and something that I definitely took away myself is about visualization and the clarity of intention. And you write how, you know, visualization actually helped you uh, become a neurosurgeon. I know this is probably quite basic, but what is visualization and how does it work? Like, what is the science to show like how this technique is so powerful? Visualization is often a technique that we um, uh, hear used with athletes. You know, they visualized whatever it is, the race they're running in, et cetera, et cetera. And the nature of that visualization was so attuned to what they were doing that it actually allowed them to manifest that happening. What happens is, one is, you need to know what you really want. Mm -hmm. And this is a challenge for many of us because we get confused between what we think society's definition of success is versus true success. And what do I mean by that is um, when I grew up, and in fact, even when I made that list in the book, you know, I was looking at it through my perspective of, geez, I wanted a Rolex watch because I saw it on a rich person and I wanted a Porsche and I wanted to live in a mansion and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because I thought that having those things meant I was successful. And what I realized ultimately is that that's not the true measure of success. The true measure of success is, you know, how do you live your life? Are you fair? Are you generous? Are you kind? Uh, do you watch out for other people? But in terms of the visual visualization part, once you define what you need to do or what you want to do, the best thing you can do is to incorporate all of your senses to make that manifest because you have to take this motivational desire and embed it into your subconscious. And if you look at actually, as an example, the placebo effect, which is how these sugar pills, if you will, if a person believes that they're going to work on them, there's a high likelihood they will work the exact same way as the drug. If you look at hypnosis, you see these people who go into these states and do these amazing things and have no knowledge of it. And you see monks, as an example, who do different types of meditation practices and can withstand pain, uh, you know, um, can go out to the cold, their body temperature doesn't change. These are hints about this latent ability that each of us has to manifest anything. You see, part of the problem is when you say, I can't, I won't, it's not possible, 
it's as if you're building a prison with the bricks of this negativism. And the more it, you say it over and over, the prison walls get higher and higher, it gets darker, it gets very negative. And this immense, incredible power that you have within yourself, you are giving away because you say, I can't, it's not possible, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're able to release that negative emotion, that's when you actually control your power again. And you use visualization to do that. So by utilizing all of your senses, you want to then transfer this motivational desire into your subconscious. So what I did and, and what we have found from sports psychology is, you know, you make a list of what you want. You read the list. You think about it. You see yourself doing it. And you do this over and over. And this is what I did for hours. I'd make this list. <laughs> I would read it. I would read it aloud. I would sit there, close my eyes, and see this. And then it would get embedded into my subconscious. What happens when it gets embedded in your subconscious? As an example, and as a physician, you know, I have patients who come to me and I'll diagnose some condition. And invariably they'll say, you know, I've never heard of that before. Then you see them two months later and they go, you know, it's the most amazing thing. I've run across five people who have the same thing. Well, what happened? They have put that into their subconscious and now they're attuned to anyone who may have that condition or disease. In some ways, it's like if you're at a party and you hear your name across the room, you immediately turn to it. Even though it's very loud, there are other people talking. You know, there's a book called, uh, I think it's called 50 Bits. Basically, what that means is that with our senses, there are millions, I think it's, they say six million bits of information that come in every second, right? Well, if we can only handle 50 to 100, what does that mean? It means we're turning off 99.99% because they're not helpful to us. If you're able to get that information into your subconscious and you're attuned to it, then you filter out all the other stuff and you're attuned to that event coming in. And that's how you visualize things. You train yourself through these different techniques to have that go into your subconscious and then be open to the possibilities. And you filter out the useless stuff that you actually it isn't going to be helpful to you. I would love to dive into the relationship between the brain and the heart is something that you've looked at um, in great depth. And really, I would say the global leader um, in understanding that relationship. Kind of what does heart opening mean? And what most surprised you when you started to kind of uncover this relationship that, as you said, in the 60s, like we really didn't know much about it. What's been the most surprising things about your research? Well, you know, it's not only my research. There are a lot of people who've been looking into this uh, over the last uh, many years. Uh, I recently uh, co-authored a paper about heart rate variability, which you may know uh, is actually in some ways about this brain-heart connection. You know, when you, uh, an individual is stressed or anxious, their heart rate variability, and what that is, is the interbeat variability of the heart. And what do I mean by that? 
two people could have a heart rate of 60. One, their heart beats once every second, and that's a decrease or lack of heart rate variability. The other is one beat may be 1.1 second, and the second one may be 0.8 second, and the third may be 0.9 second, and the other may be 1.1 second, but at the end of the day, it's still 60 beats a minute. The person who has the heart rate variability, the increase in heart rate variability, actually has a much healthier heart. It's this connection because when you're in your parasympathetic mode and you're not stressed and anxious, your cardiac function uh, works much better. And then the reverse of that is that, you know, uh, it's not a one-way street. It goes back and forth. And different events happening in your body can also affect uh, how your heart responds. And so this connection between the vagus nerve, which is distributed throughout the entire uh, body and, and in various organs, especially in the heart, is sort of this two-way mechanism of communication. You will meet people who, I use the term, they're lost in their head. Everything they think of, it doesn't involve the heart. And you see people like this in finance uh, or in banking. Uh, and I'm not trying to criticize that whole group of people. There's certainly exceptions. But I would say if you look at a population that has a lot of these people in their head, these are people who they're focused on money. They're focused on, on quote unquote success. And, you know, when you present to them other concepts, they can't even fathom them versus, you know, they're heart centered people who are always giving, always kind. And I think it's this combination between the two where your heart drives you, but it's also tempered by your brain that allows you to try to think things through but your actions are not devoid of that critical part uh, which makes us human and allows us to survive. You know, there was an experiment, experiments that were being done early on when uh, neuroscientists were trying to understand this relationship and they were uh, studying Buddhist monks. And it was interesting because you've probably seen the photograph of the Buddhist monk with the head cap on and all the electrodes in their head. And they were saying to the monks that they were going to do measurements of the brain to determine how compassionate uh, they were. And these monks looked at them and they just laughed. The scientists assumed it was because this cap they were wearing actually was funny looking. Uh, but when they actually queried the monks, uh, the monks said, how can you talk about compassion? It's not here, it's here. <laughs> Oxytocin being created in the heart. Well, uh, uh, certainly these motivations of caring and kindness, uh, and you know, you mentioned oxytocin, that as well as other neurotransmitters, you know, oxytocin is called the love hormone. The interesting thing about oxytocin is that if you give someone intranasal oxytocin, you know, it gets absorbed into your bloodstream. And what happens? If you're with a group of people who you're close to, you know, you feel the sense of warmth, you feel this love for them, and you want to hug them. Now, the interesting thing about that, though, is that if they're not part of your quote-unquote tribe, it has no effect. Wow. So this is why, you know, we talk about tribe. You know, as we evolve from 
you know, the nuclear family to hunter-gatherer tribes, which was how we lived as a species in groups of 10 to 50 until six or 8,000 years ago, when an individual um, didn't follow the rules or do what they were supposed to do, of course, or were suffering, you know, we recognized this and, and you know, we would um, connect with them and, you know, help them alter their behavior. But again, these were people who you felt close to. But if you had in this, you know, hostile environment, somebody from the outside come in and maybe was even suffering, you would not feel that same uh, degree of desire to help them at all. But David DeSteno at Northeastern University, interestingly enough, he demonstrated, though, that if you looked at the other and who was far different than you, whether it was religion-based or whatever criteria, but if you started connecting to them in the sense of, well, they want their children to be educated. Uh, they just want to have a home where they feel safe. All of these aspects uh, that each of us want for ourselves and recognize this is what the other wants, then you start breaking down these barriers of separation and then the oxytocin, in fact, works because they're no longer the other. And this is truly the recognition that we are all one. And when you look at the other, you see yourself. Then if you see yourself, you have to be kind, you have to be generous, you have to connect with them. And ultimately, while it's a lofty goal, uh, I think that is the ultimate goal for each of us to try to attain. And buying your book and listening to your work is a great step in understanding how you can do that. But in terms of like actionable next steps, how can we help ourselves transcend? Um, how can we help those around us? Because, you know, I know for some people, if your friendship group, for example, isn't particularly interested in this, you can feel a bit lonely in this work. Um, what would be your tips and maybe kind of action points for us to kind of stay being as compassionate as possible? What I try to do in my own life are a couple things. One is, I try to live by example. And what I mean by that is that when people see how you act in different situations or don't act, that has an effect oftentimes. But the other aspect is, uh, which I tell people sometimes is, I'm interested in my karma, their karma is their karma. And what I mean by that is I do what's important to me. I may give advice, I may make a statement, but I'm not here to try to change you. I'm certainly available if you're interested, but my job is to deal with myself and how I interact with the world. And hopefully by doing so, that impacts others. Uh, the other aspect is to be self-compassionate, you know, to take the time to sit, to relax, to breathe, and then go through this exercise of trying to change the dialogue you have with yourself about who you are and what is possible. And this isn't going to happen overnight. And But if you do it over and over and you sit and you say, I'm worthy, I deserve to be loved, I deserve to be cared for, what you will find is that this will start affecting how you also start perceiving uh, the world. Uh, 
And the other thing goes back to that quote I said earlier, which is everyone has suffered in some way, even people who you can't imagine, who seemingly have success, whether it's, you know, uh, professional success, financial success, when you really get into the lives of many of these people, what you recognize is that many of them are suffering very deeply and they're trying to put on this projection of being everything being uh, great and wonderful. But in fact, it's not at all. And for myself, as an example here, I was in a position where, you know, I had become a very successful neurosurgeon. I had been the CEO of a company that went public for 1.2 billion. I was living in a penthouse in San Francisco. I had Porsches, Ferraris. I was dating all these beautiful women. And this was my dream, right? And all my friends would go, God, man, you got it all. Yet I would come home and be miserable. Mm-hmm. And I would sit and I was going, how is this possible? You know, I have this beautiful view. I have all of this stuff and I'm completely empty. And the, and the thing was, it's not that those things are bad. The problem was that I was doing all of this stuff to overcome the shame uh, the lack of self-worth, thinking that if I had all of these external attachments, it would make me okay. Mm. And when I lost everything, and in fact ended up giving $30 million away, what I did was I was suddenly liberated because I realized that the thing that was on my back was that issue, and it related to money and achievement and all of these things. And when I, with intention, gave away $30 million to charity, and when I was bankrupt, effectively, I was, I think, about $3 million uh, in the red, I was extraordinarily liberated and released the monkey on my back because I realized, well, all those things are wonderful to have. If you don't know who you are and you haven't dealt with your internal issues, all of that stuff is completely meaningless. And I would suggest that, again, it's dealing with this inner issue of how you see yourself, who you want to be, and being authentic. You know, oftentimes in these discussions, uh, I give lectures in front of a bunch of people. And I remember I I gave a talk and uh, my voice cracked and I shed some tears about a story I was telling. And after the lecture, a woman comes up to me and she says, you know, I watched you up there and I, I so felt for you. Gosh, you, you know, you, your voice cracked. You, I saw these tears. You were wiping your eyes. You must have been so embarrassed. And she said, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotherapist. And, you know, if you come to me for three sessions, I can get rid of that. And, uh, <laughs> and that is what makes me human. That is what lets people know I care. That lets people know I'm authentic. And when I can show my own humanity, that allows everyone else to show theirs. So I think it's important that you're not afraid of being who you really are. And what you'll find is actually when you show your suffering, when you show you're in pain, you know, I've never had a person come up to me and go, you're an idiot, uh, you know, for doing that or you're weak. You know, people, first of all, they want to help you in any way they, they can and they feel connected to you and versus if you know this guy who just talks from his head never shows any emotion you know you can find that pretty much anywhere but that doesn't create 
the sense of true connection with somebody. Honestly, my heart is just so full. You're such a wonderful speaker. This has just been incredible. I've got so many more questions that we didn't even reach, but we'll have to save that for next time when we can celebrate the launch of your podcast that is hopefully coming in the next few months. But until your own podcast has launched, where can people find you online and where is the best place to direct? And obviously for everyone listening, I'll be putting it all in the show notes. Um, but um, verbally, where can people find you? So I run a center at Stanford that examines the neuroscience of compassion and altruism. It's called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Uh, the mnemonic, where, where mnemonic synonym, uh, CCARE, C-C-A-R-E dot Stanford dot E-D-U. Uh, you can send me an email at jrdoty, D-O-T-Y at Stanford dot E-D-U. Uh, you can go to the book website, which is into the magic shop dot com. And some way or another, within that, you will find me. Perfect. And as I said, that, that will all be in the show notes. So thank you so much for being on the Not Perfect podcast, Dr. Doty. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.